Good morning. Morning. Y'all look pretty good. Thanks. Look. Wow. You clean up fast. The um, yeah, y'all look good. 10 a.m. on a Saturday. Is that is this? Are you people usually asleep at this time? Some no. Some yes. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, excited for you all to be here. This is. I get the privilege of talking about the Bible this morning. This is, um, yeah, I could, I could, I could talk about this for, for days, and it would, I wouldn't have enough time. I, I love talking about the Bible. For y'all's sake, I'll keep it to under three hours, and so um, I wish you finished around four. Is that? But no, I do have some uh, real questions for you though. And all the introverts in the room, you still have to participate. Uh, everyone has to participate, 100% participation. So, got some questions for you. First question is, how many of you have read the Bible all the way through? Raise your hand. Okay, okay, it's about five or now about six, six of us. Okay, how many of you have read another book? Can, can you hear the reverb? Yeah, I was trying to get that. Oh, okay. Thank you, technician Sean. The greatest technician I know. If there's no reverb, then it's... Or if there is reverb, I'm totally okay with that. It'll just sound like I'm uh, godlike. But while Sean's doing that... Okay, how many of you, second question, have read any other book all the way through? Oh, wow. it's a lot of people. Okay. Then, next question. Then, how many of you would like to read the Bible all the way through? Mm. Isn't it interesting that how many of you, one more question before I ask this last one, or say this last thing. How many of you would say the Bible is the most important book that you could ever read? That's almost all the hands. So, you say that the Bible is the most important book that you can ever read. In fact, some people, that's not even something that most Christians would say. That's something that even some non-Christians would say. That the Bible is the most important book you could ever read. Yet, we read other, other books all the way through. But so few have read the Bible all the way through. Hmm. Some of you said you would like to read the Bible all the way through. Well, hopefully at the end of this, I'll be able to ask the question again. And uh, we'll see how many people will say that they will declare that they'll read the Bible all the way through after this. The Bible, I love the Bible. It's a fun book. I've read it through, I think, probably combined maybe like six times, I think. But there's certain parts of it that I've read through many times. And there's some parts, you know, Levit Leviticus is it's work. <laughs> numbers, though, don't let numbers deceive you. It starts rough, but it's actually a whole lot of fun. Numbers is, is really cool. But when it comes to the Bible, it's not the easiest thing to read. One reason, or a few reasons why the Bible is difficult to read, 
is first of all, there's a cultural gap when it comes to the Bible. Who came in here and you were thinking about, okay, I'm going to learn about the Bible this morning and I'm very anxious to find out what happened to the Amorites and the Hittites? Was that the question? Uh, Dalton says yes. He, he's... The Jebusites. Oh, he want to know what happened to the Jebusites. Yeah. Like, these names, some of you have never even heard of these names before. The Bible mentions a whole lot of people groups that you, like, you don't, you don't even hear about, see, you don't see them on TV, but yet they're all over the Bible. There's a tremendous cultural gap. It's not, and it's not even just, like, a different time, but it's a different, like, it's a different culture altogether, like, oh, is that me? I don't think that one's me. It's in an Eastern culture with people groups that we have no relation to. It's another reason, though, that it's difficult to read is because of the time gap. The Bible was written over 2,000 years ago, and parts of it were written over 3,000 years ago. And not only that, but the Bible is also deals with the, when you talk about the length of where the Bible is talking, like what it's talking about, I mean... The beginning of the Bible starts with the beginning of our universe, and then the end of the Bible ends with the end of our world and kind of the end of our universe. I mean, no other book starts or ends as early or as late as the Bible does. Like, it is the time that it is dealing with is, is tremendous. Another thing, though, about the Bible that's really difficult is it's not in chronological order. And that's really difficult because you think about this whole idea of like, okay, let's take the prophets, for example. You got the last semester we did the minor prophet series. You remember that? That was a lot of fun. I enjoyed that series. But in that series, we're talking about the minor prophets. And then you have major prophets, and they're not in any order. They're not in the order of when they were written. They're literally, it's kind of in the order, it's basically in the order of which books are the, were the biggest when it comes to the major prophets. The major prophets are only the larger books. But that has nothing to do with order. Did Jeremiah come first or did Isaiah come first? Did Habakkuk come first or did Jonah come first? And where are they when it comes to the, all the historical stuff? Actually, the prophets are all in between everything from Joshua all the way to Nehemiah. And the prophets are just sprinkled out through there. But that's not how you read the book. And so you're jumping around when it comes to... Or, or even just the New Testament, not just the Old Testament, the New Testament. Look at... Look at the order of, like, the Gospels. Like, they're not in chronological order. They're individual books. And then you look at Paul's epistles, his letters. What's the order of his letters? Size. Romans is his largest letter. And Philemon is his shortest. And they, get, they just decrease according to size. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, they come after Romans because they're a little bit smaller. It's not chronological. And so you're having to make sense of it. And then all these letters are sprinkled all throughout Acts. So the Bible, it, it takes a little bit of work to read it. Now, a couple of things about what is the Bible. Speaking of Bible, I actually didn't bring my Bible. But someone hand me a Bible. I'm talking about the Bible. I didn't even bring a Bible. Shame on me. Oh, in fact, no. Could you read first... Go to 2 Timothy 3.16. Sorry, I was supposed to have my Bible up here. I knew I felt light in some way. And this is Lauren reading. 
All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The Bible is breathed by God. It's a book breathed by God. Yes, it is written by men, but it's God getting a hold of men and then them writing down what he has put on their heart. And the Bible is a library of books. That's the first thing I want to say after that. It's a library of books. It's not a book. It's a library book. In fact, the Bible, the word Bible comes from Biblios, which is the library of God, or some places it says Biblia, which is uh, many books. It has basically, but it's a library. It's a library of books compiled. You have to see it as that. When you see it as a library, that helps so much when it comes to understanding and reading it and taking it like just seriously. But another thing about the Bible is the Bible is a miracle. It is a miracle. The Bible is a miracle. And I'm just going to just think about this. The Bible is 66 separate books. It's a library written by 40 different authors over the course of a 2,000 year period, written by different, at different times by people all across the spectrum, different cultures, different ethnicities, different nationalities within these, like, like there's all these different things going on, different, different like, um, what do you call it, uh, professions. You got some people who are farmers, you got some people who are, who are kings, you have some people who are prophets. Some people who were priests, but these, like, everyone wasn't just religious. Like, some of them were doctors, some of them were lawyers, and they're all writing at different times this book. Just imagine if you did that with any other book. You go and you grab some dude, hey, this dude in Ethiopia, hey, you're a king. Could you write about God? Oh, yeah, sure. And then this guy over in San Francisco, could you write about God and philosophy? Oh, yeah, sure. And then you go run over to Greece and you say, hey, could you write about God and poetry? Yeah, sure. Oh, hey, this person over in China, could you write? Like, if you did that, what kind of book would you have? <laughs> it would be a complete mess. The Bible was written over a 1,500-year period. And yet, it all makes sense. It all comes together. There's a congruency about it. Like, it, that's incredible. I wasn't going to read this, but I'll go, ahead and, I'll go ahead and read it. It's a quote by Winky Prattney. It's a little long, but this is just a great quote in the Bible. Say so you're going to write a book, and when you get all of these people together to write this book on religion, poetry, ethics, science, philosophy, and creation of the universe, and then you ask them to throw in a few things about just how they think the world's going to end. Next you, ask, next, you collect all the information, and then, oh, by the way, you have, you have to separate these people so that they can't communicate with one another by phone or telegraph. Only possibly by word of mouth, passed down over the years. Ah yes, years. You collect all this stuff over a period of one and a half thousand years and compile the whole thing into one book. What would you have? A motley junk, the most motley junk that you've ever seen in your life. With people totally contradicting one another. 
I suggest you take a biology book from 60 years ago and compare it with one from today. And that's just 60 years. But that's not what you have when you read the Bible. The more you read this book, the more you see how the incredible unity within it. Because the more you get into it, the more incredibly detailed it is. And you find that there are not 40 people who wrote the book, but one person. One person wrote the book. The fact remains, only an infinite mind could have devised this library of books. The Bible is a book with a universal message for all men. It's the only volume that a child and a scholar may find equal delight in. It's simple, life-related principles can work in any country, transcending barriers of culture, race, to bring peace, love, joy, and forgiveness. Only the Bible can make bad men good, and inside, transforming the rebel into the saint. The Bible is a miracle. So, I want to take a little bit of time to talk about why we believe the Bible is credible and reliable. Why we can trust the Bible. And after this, I'm going to say a couple other things, then we'll have a Q&A, and then after the q and I'll tell a couple stories, and we'll be done. We'll eat, and then uh, we'll keep having fun. But the, the Bible, when it comes to the credibility of the Bible, we got any, uh, who is it, History Channel fans? Oh, goodbye, my friend. I really like him, too. Get him over there. He's alone. Cold, frightened. I love you. <laughs> but you got the History Channel, and they, uh, I don't know what it's like now. I mean, this was a few years ago when I used to watch a little bit more, but the History Channel, you would go, and it was like every couple weeks, it was like, why we, why we can't trust the Bible, or is the Bible trustworthy? And they were always coming after it. Always. That was like the that was like the craze. Like, is the Bible reliable? You probably hear it from your professors a little bit. You probably hear it. I, I was in the Arab world recently and that was brought up a lot. Oh, the Bible's been changed, so you can't trust it. That's why we that's why we read the Quran because it's trustworthy. You hear that all the time from different people, different groups of people. From academic people, you hear just talking around the water cooler why the Bible isn't reliable. And it'll be something that you'll hear as a small group leader too. Can we trust the Bible? It was written by men. Is this a trustworthy book? Some of you are familiar with these questions. Have some of you never heard of them? Okay. Okay. Well, I think most of us have heard these. Or maybe you all are just uh, being introverted and only half the people are nodding their heads. Mm, the struggle. Will I let myself be seen? All right. When it comes to why do we think the Bible is credible? And I'm going to start with the Old Testament. Com- or before I even go to the Old Testament, I'm actually going to start with the Bible in compa- comparison to other books from antiquity. And this is really cool. I was supposed to send a slide to you, but I didn't send a slide. So you just have to, I think you have some of it there. So you have to fill it in. But the Bible compared to any other book in antiquity, it's not even close. How amazing it is. It's not even close. The first book that you should see see there, if I'm not mistaken, is the most reliable book behind the Bible, The Odyssey, written by Homer. Anybody have to read Homer? Yeah. The Odyssey? Boo. No? Boo? Uh, I enjoyed it. 
one night Cyclops, she can't beat that. Yes, she can with the Bible. Mm. But the Odyssey, this book, if I'm not mistaken, it was made in 300 BC. That's when it. That's when it should have been. 300 BC. I'm sorry, 850 BC. I'm confusing that with another date. 850 BC was when the Odyssey was like first told, or wasn't wasn't really written, or maybe it was written by Homer. How long was it before it actually made it to being written down and we have a manuscript of it? This is the second most reliable book. 300 A.D. Between 300 A.D. and 1500 A.D., we have about a thousand manuscripts of the Odyssey by Homer. That's the second most reliable book from antiquity. 300 A.D., that's a long time after, 850 B.C. And yet, this is the second most reliable book from antiquity. And some of you are like, well, what does antiquity mean? It's the ancient past, things that happened before the Middle Ages, so before 500 A.D. It's the second most reliable book, and we have about 1,000 manuscripts. That's a lot, because you'll hear why I mean that's a lot. Because the second book that we have, The Gaelic Wars by Julius Caesar... These are some books that you have to read. These are books that people don't, people don't really ask whether this was really written by Julius Caesar, whether it's reliable. This one, first century B.C. was when it would have been made. We have ten manuscripts in existence, and the date is a thousand years later. A thousand years later is the first manuscript we have of the Gaelic Wars by Julius Caesar. What about Aristotle. We hear about Aristotle all the time. People quote Aristotle. People said Aristotle said this, Aristotle said that. Aristotle, he would have written his books, his poetics, about 335 B.C. We have five manuscripts of that in existence from antiquity, and they date 1,400 years after. We quote Aristotle as if we can trust his words. And it's 1,400 years after when he said him that we have anything written down about him. And then there's Shakespeare. Who got any Shakespeare fans? Midnight Summer Dreams, anyone? Michael? Okay. <laughs> no, it was Allie. She's a Shakespeare fan. How many of y'all have heard, can we, can, we rel- can we trust Shakespeare's words? How many of you have heard that in class? Well, but yes, can we trust? Yeah, can we trust that he wrote those plays and that they're reliable? Dalton has only Dalton, good man. And you, whoever whoever questioned that is good for questioning it because we don't have an original manuscript from Shakespeare's own hand. We don't have one, and this was five hundred years ago. We have zero manuscripts from Shakespeare. And yet your English teacher never questioned whether Shakespeare made those. And yet we question the Bible all the time. You know how many manuscripts of the Bible that we have from antiquity? We have over 24,000 manuscripts from antiquity of the Bible. There's a David Rawl. He's a professor of Egyptology in the University of London. And he, um, he's, not a, he's not a Christian but he studies archaeology and 
Egyptology and all this kind of stuff. And he says that he believes that the Old Testament is the most, or the Bible is the most reliable book from that age. And that he is extremely impressed at its reliability and credibility as a book from an, archeolo from an archaeological standpoint. It's, you can't even compare. And, and some of you are like, okay, well, what, what about these dates? I'm going to tell a couple stories. We'll have some fun with these dates. My favorite story is about the Old Testament and why we can rely on the Old Testament. Anybody, um, anybody ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? The Dead Sea Scrolls were the greatest archaeological find in the history of mankind. The greatest. 1947, this kid is walking around and he's, uh, he's in like the Qumran community of, um, what is the place? Where is the Dead Sea? Jordan, outside of Jordan. It's like, isn't it Jordan in like a few other countries? Ah, never mind. Yeah. Sorry. Any historians in here? I should know this, but I don't. Palestine, Jordan, definitely not Djibouti. Djibouti is in Africa. Well, yes, it's the, okay, yeah, it's like a thousand miles, but uh, his, uh, he, he knows a lot of things. The geography wasn't Christopher's gift, he'll tell you that, but uh, well, it, obviously it's not my gift either if I don't know where the Dead Sea is, but moving away from that, the Dead Sea Scrolls, this kid is walking around and he's throwing rocks over by the Dead Sea and he throws a rock into a nearby cave that you know, there's a bunch of caves over there. It's Dead Sea, cool place. Those are rock in there. Here's something break, like pottery. It wasn't like natural. It wasn't like, oh, okay, I hit like another stone. It was pottery. So he goes in and he finds what, what he broke, pulls some stuff out, finds these old scrolls, takes them home. He's like, oh, this is pretty cool. Don't want to leave this here. Goes home. His dad is doing his laundry that night, sees it. And then he's like, what is this? Kid's like, oh, I found this earlier today. His dad's like, this? This is pretty cool. I'm going to take it to the market tomorrow. So they go to the market, and he's like, look, I'm going to try to make some money. He sits it out with, you know, and yeah, it might be worth something. It, he, what do you mean? What? The dad's just like, hey, I'm going to take your stuff and get some money. It's all good. Well, that is, okay, yes. He was going to share it. Surely he's a good father, we're assuming. But he goes, sits it out with the other, you know, car parts, engine parts that he's selling at the souk, the, the, the local market. And he sits it out, and it just so happens that an, that an Egyptian paprologist walks by. Because that's what always happens when you sit stuff out at the market. And this guy is just passing through the market this day, and it's obviously Providence. He walks by, and he's just like, oh, what is that? Oh, no. And then he goes to the guy, and he says, hey, um, I'll give you five pounds for this. And the guy's like, no. And he's like, all right, I'll give you 50 pounds. That's a lot of money in 1947. And he's like, oh, so you like it. And he's like, okay, okay, okay. i give you 500 pounds for it right now. That's over $10,000. In their time, it's over $10,000 today. And the guy's like, 
what is this? <laughs> and the guy says, I'm not telling you what it is until you tell me where you got it. And so the guy takes him back to the cave, and they make the greatest archaeological find in all of mankind. They find all of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And over the next decade, they pull out scroll after scroll of these preserved to the T manuscripts of the Old Testament. I mean, in there, there is, they find a 15-foot Isaiah scroll. All of Isaiah is there. And it's dated to 200 to 408 B.C. 400 to 200 B.C. That's when it was dated. But they find all of the Old Testament in there, except for one book. Anybody want to take a guess what that book was that they didn't find? Micah. <laughs> Esther. <laughs> Esther. Yeah, sorry, ladies. Esther did not make it, you know. Sorry. Yep. Whoever said all. Oh, for such a time as this. No. But. I'm already mad. No, Esther wasn't in there. But they found every other, every other book in the Old Testament. Why is this significant? You're like, ah, oh, okay. It's like, why would that be the greatest archaeologist? They found a bunch of stuff in these caves. And these... They were preserved by they were preserved by the Essenes and basically the Essenes. So we got Amish people. Yeah, it's kind of cool. I moved up here from Texas. <laughs> you know, we didn't have any Amish people where I was from, so I'd heard about them. Then I move up here and I see them. They got the really sweet beards, the cool hats. You know, they're like, oh, you know, we're going back and we're doing it. You know, like no electricity, no this, no that. I don't want to make a bunch of assumptions over what they don't do, but you know, I definitely know about the electricity, so I'll just say that and the and the cool cool hats. <laughs> But the Essenes, they were basically this group of people many, many years ago, hundreds of years ago, who were like, hey, you know what? We're going to go back, first century A.D., we're going to go back to a time like, we're going to be just like the Amish, except they were before the Amish. But they're like, we're going to be just like the Amish, and we're going to go, and we're going to do it the right way. We're going to be all natural, no electricity. I don't know what they did, so I guess that's no candles for them. I don't, I don't know how that applies, but... So, what, what, but in order to do that, in order to be like these naturalists or kind of hippies in a sense, they had to go live in caves. And so they lived in caves and they were super religious. And so, with their text, they put these in these, they put them in these airtight pottery vases and sealed them with wax so that they were preserved perfectly. Perfectly. And then something happened, they all fled, but they left their stuff there. And so that's what they found. Why is this significant? Why is this the greatest archaeological find? Because for centuries, centuries, they said that there is no way that the prophecies in the Old Testament were actually written before Jesus Christ. Because they're too spot on. Guys, Isaiah... Isaiah, it says in Isaiah, for unto us a child is born, a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Two chapters before that, it says, behold, you will seek a sign, and behold, a virgin shall be with child, 
and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And then 46 chapters after that, it says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we were healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And it's there. And they can't say that they can't say that this was written after he lived. It predates him at least two hundred years. And he fulfilled these prophecies. I know pluralism is a big deal. This idea of all the religions being the same and everybody's worshiping the same God, but Guys, other religious books don't, they don't make prophecies. That's some bold stuff to make prophecies. The Bible makes these prophecies and the Dead Sea Scrolls showed that, oh, these prophecies actually were made before. This was huge. And you couldn't argue with it. Oh, man. It was the Ace of Spades. Okay, Old Testament reliability. What about congruency? Because not only is the prophecy, the prophetical aspect of this big, but also congruency. What about the fact of the Bible that we have right here? They had to compare it with the Dead Sea Scrolls. They said, surely we're going to find that stuff has been changed because that's what you've heard, the telephone game. Oh, how can you trust the Bible? It's been translated and translated and translated so many times that you can't rely on it. And then what happened? They went and compared it with the older manuscripts and they found a 97% congruency between what we have in our Bible and what they had in the Dead Sea Scrolls and the other manuscripts that they found. And then that other 3%, they found out that the only reason, the only thing, that, the only difference in that 3% was about syntax and spelling. Syntax meaning word order. Word order and spelling. The thematic, the, the thematic things about it, nothing changed. It's the same book. It's the same. And sometimes people are like, ah, you know, like, ha. The people who translated the Bible took it seriously. It didn't mean nothing to them. They were passionate about it. Some of you have heard me talk about the Nazarites before and how crazy they were. What did, these guys were, they were, the Nazarites, you could go and take a Nazarite vow, and you can read about this in the Old Testament. These are people who for like 60 days, or in Samson's case, for a lifetime, but then Samson had some other issues, and then he wasn't that faithful to it. But let's remove Samson, I didn't even bring him up. But the other Nazarites, these guys were just, they were very serious and took, took what they did very seriously. And they were the ones who translated the Old Testament from Hebrew to Greek. Because it was written in Hebrew. And they translated, translated it to Greek, which is what we have the Septuagint. Some of y'all have heard that. that. The way that they did that, they did it where they would go and they would have two manuscripts next to each other. And they would, or two papers or scrolls next to each other. And then they would write, so let's say the first word is cat. 
they would write cat, cat, cat on the like, you know, waste manuscript or waste scroll, and then they would go and write on the actual one, cat. And they do the next word, ran, 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 ran. And they write the next word, ran, up, 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 up. Okay, up. And they did that all the way through. But when they got to Yahweh, they would throw out the pen, get new ink, and then they would write Yahweh, throw out that pen, throw out that ink, and then get a new pen, new ink, and then go on further. And that's how they translated the whole Old Testament to Greek. And then when they went back over it, if they found one error on the page, they would throw out the whole page and you had to start over. How much would that suck if you turned in a paper that you worked real hard on and at the very like last two last paragraph, you like misspell a word and the professor burns it in front of you and says start over. What? <laughs> Alec isn't having it. <laughs> but that's what they did. Like the people who translated this, and I'm going to talk about another guy who translated the Bible. Like, they took this seriously. It wasn't like, it wasn't just their job. It wasn't something they did for fun. Like this was like, they were passionate about this. They took this seriously. What about the New Testament? The New Testament is actually even more accurate in regards to the man. And I, and I love this aspect of the New Testament. In the New Testament, we have over 20,000 manuscripts from antiquity of the New Testament. But, we have these manuscripts in a bunch of different languages. So we got them in, we got them in um, Coptic, Syriac, Greek, Latin, Old Church, Slavonic. Like we have all these different languages of early manuscripts of New Testament, of the New Testament. But between all of those manuscripts, there's a 97.3% accuracy between all of them. And then 0. 0.6, 0. 0.6, that one, 0. 0.6 of that 0. 0.7 error is again word, word order and syntax, or word order and spelling. That's it. You have all these different manuscripts in all these different languages, and they all agree. That's incredible. Um, some of y'all aren't mathematicians, so you're like, oh, okay, I guess this is kind of cool. And some of y'all might be struggling with the, with the math a little bit. I'll, I'll step away from the math and talk about something called the Q7 document. Now, the Q7 document is a little scrap of paper. It's literally, if you pull out your driver's license, I was going to have y'all tear your things, you know, but I don't want y'all to tear them because you got to write on them, you know, and I didn't make any extra space, so you can't tear it. But you can pull out your driver's license or something. You can pull out a credit card. It's about that size. It's this little document that was found a few decades ago, and it is not, it wasn't as significant in regards to, like, just the sheer breadth and sweeping, like, all the stuff that it did, that the Dead, Dead Sea Scrolls did, but it is definitely the most controversial. It's, it's more controversial than them. And the reason that this is so, so just controversial, uh, it's a document yet again found in an obscure cave somewhere 
them in these caves. I don't know, all of you spelunking and cave diving fans, you might be inspired to go to a nearby cave and, you know, don't die, but see what you can find. Maybe you'll find Bruce Wayne there. But um, some of y'all got that, you know, Dark Knight? Spelunking, maybe he's going to make his new suit, and then he's like, Alfred's like, oh, what are you going to use these for? That's my Morgan Freeman voice. You know? Then he's like, uh, spelunking, some Bruce Wayne. And so, there you go. Cave diving, spelunking. All right, we'll just, I'll meander back over to the Bible. But, uh, but look, they go and they find this little scrap, and they're like, oh, okay, obviously, just like the Dead Sea Scrolls, this looks very important. Let's go and run it through the system and see, because it looks like something out of the Old Testament. They go run it through the system. Not Well, first they looked in Jeremiah. It wasn't in there. Then they looked in all the Old Testament. It wasn't there. They looked in the New Testament. And it was from the Gospel of Mark. And this was so cool. It was from the Gospel of Mark. But why is it such a big deal? And i got to read this because it has some words in there that I don't really understand so much. It was basically written in unical form. Which, this may not mean anything to you, but when they wrote... Something back then, like when the Jews wrote something about something that was going on, they wrote in unical form prior to the destruction of the temple in 87 AD. 87 AD, Jerusalem was like wiped out. Everything got messed up, but the temple was destroyed. And from that day forward, because they felt like the law of God was broken, they never wrote in unical form again. It was actually forbidden to write in unical form. Why, why is this significant? Because it being written in unical form means that it had to have come before 87 AD. Why is that significant? Because that means that this was written. It's a part of the Gospel of Mark. It was written during the lifetime of the apostles, which means that it was written by eyewitnesses of Jesus. There isn't anything that we have anywhere that can compare with this. Nothing. And not just like, not like, I mentioned those other, I mentioned those other things. That's like, that's like with the Iliad, or with, the, with Homer and the Odyssey. That's like them saying, oh yeah, all of our stuff on Homer and the Odyssey is a thousand, a thousand years later. But then all of a sudden they find this one little sheet of paper that is dated and is proven to be dated because of some, I don't know, something as ridiculous as this whole unical form thing that shows that it was written in his lifetime. Like, guys, that is unbelievably significant. The reason it was so controversial was because they knew it was like, oh, we can't. We can't argue with this. In fact, it took him decades to actually even accept that it was a genuine document. It wasn't until, like, literally the last 10 years that the American uh, Paprology Association actually came behind and supported this. And then a bunch of other people have, like, come behind and said, okay, we can't argue with this anymore. It is legitimate. It's real. And it's unbelievably significant. The testimony, the stuff that we say about Jesus... It's proof. That is, I don't know. That's just so cool to me because that shows that God is, God's word is not only just inspired, but he has protected it. 
it is inspired and protected. Pretty cool. That's pretty cool stuff. All right, what about the issue of canonization? Because that's like a real big thing, and I hope I don't um, butcher this too bad. We'll go to uh, questions soon after this, and then um, after the questions, then we'll meander back over, and I'll tell a couple stories, and, and we'll be done. But what about the canonization of the Bible? The canonization, Bible being canonized, basically it's just how do we know which books should go in the Bible? It was the canon of the Bible. Which, which books should be there? Canon means standard or like rule of measure, common standard. There were two significant things that brought about the canonization of the Bible. The first was in AD 367, the 39th Pascal letter of Athanasius contained the exact list of the 27 New Testament books. And this was significant because in the Eastern, in the Eastern, Eastern world, Eastern culture, what they did was they took that letter and said, all right, this is enough for us that these books, this is the standard for the New Testament. And then, and then 30 years later in 8397, the Council of Carthage happened. And this is what we hear more about when it comes to any historians who've read about this, which I'm assuming is probably two people um, tops. Maybe I might be wrong. But uh, what they did, representing churches from all Western parts of the world or Western cultures, you know, Europe, but not just Europe, like they came together and they basically celebrated, hey, these are the books that deserve to be in the New Testament. And now, and the reason I say celebrated is because like they didn't actually like vote. They came in with like this common agreement already. It was really more of like a hey, this is a formal celebration of this is the official, in the, same way that the, in the same way that the Old Testament are these, this is the New Testament. And it wasn't really a voting. And the reason I say it wasn't a voting was because they didn't come in and say, okay, well, this is a book that I went in, and this guy came and said, well, this is a book that I went in. It wasn't like that. They basically were like, hey, we're all reading the same books. These books have basically picked themselves. So therefore, let's just celebrate what God has already done and make it official. I'm trying to be really clear with my words because it really wasn't a voting. It was a celebration. And uh, there's a guy, um, William Barclay, a few of y'all are commentary lovers. He said it really well. He said the Old Testament canon, or the, I'm sorry, the New Testament canon, it was basically like because nothing could stop these words, from becoming official scripture, that's how they became. That's how they were formed. It was as if nothing could stop them. It wasn't like they just preferred this one over this one. It was something where, like, hey, yeah, there there are these other books, but there's something different about these books, and because there's something different about them, that's why I read them. This brings up a lot of interesting issues because Sean, a former Catholic, and then a few a few of you are probably, um, you know, Catholic background. And there's the issue of like, okay, well, what books ought to be in the Bible because the, the Bible that the Catholics have has a few more books in it. And then there's a whole other issue of, I remember one day in small group, I got the worst question that I ever got in any small group. One of my guys came to me, or two of my guys, and they kind of cornered me. They were, 
they were like mad. And they were like, hey, why don't you tell us that there's other books? I'm like, what? Other books in the Bible? What? You've been hiding stuff from us. And I'm like, I'm not doing anything. I'm just, I'm just reading the Bible. And then it's like, no, no, no. What about the Gnostic Gospels? What about this? What about the Gospel of Enoch? What about this? And I was like, never heard of this before and they just had all these questions because they had already been looking at a bunch of stuff and i was terrified so i did like i had to like study for a week so i could even start talking to him about it but they had already gone so far that i was like man i don't even know what to say to you guys fortunately enough exactly what happened with them was exactly what brought the new testament canon it was the exact same thing they actually went way into them and started reading them a lot for like two weeks and then they came back to me and said, okay, we're done. And I was like, what happened? And they were like, well, you know, we, we put those books aside. They were ridiculous. And I was like, what do you mean? And they were like, well, it was some pretty crazy stuff that was happening in those books. And they explained to me stuff that they had been reading. And I was like, oh, okay. And this, isn't spe- this is specifically in regards to the Gnostic Gospels. But they read them and they were like, yeah, this is, it's clearly not, like, they're, it's clearly different. This isn't the same. Like, they're not even, they're not even in comparison. And the Gnostics were basically, they're these people who originated out of, like, Alexandria, which was a big church presence there, going into history for a minute. Basically, what they did was they were like, hey, it's not enough to be a Christian. Like, it's not enough to just say that you believe in Jesus and put your hope in him. What you need to do is you need to be a super Christian, and you need a special knowledge from God. And only when you get this special knowledge, that's when you officially become a a Christian. And so basically for them, it was like the Bible plus a couple other things. And that's what it took in order to be a Christian. And then they started writing books about this, saying like, oh yeah, it's the Bible plus this. And that's basically where we got the Gnostic Gospels from. And I got some details. If anybody is super curious in the q and I'll go into them. But rewinding and going back into a little bit into the Apocrypha, and I probably will get a question about this anyways in the Q&A, but I'll try to tackle like a couple minutes worth when it comes to this. The Apocrypha, easily the most contested aspect of what should be Like, why weren't these books in the Bible? And the easiest way to summarize it, in fact, rather than trying to say all these different things, I'm not going to say, you know, you got the story of Bell and the Dragon, you got the story of the Maccabees, or you have the Maccabees as well, and you have other things. Maccabees are really cool, by the way. They're like Braveheart for for not Christians, but like for Jews. Like, it's like super violent, you know, but like really cool stuff. Violence is bad stuff, but kind of cool at the same time, but still bad. But, but like, just to, in fact, rather than go into each one of these books, I will say this. This is the reason why the Apocrypha, they just don't really make it into Scripture. One, they do not claim for themselves to be of the authority of the other Old Testament writings. So they don't, they don't even themselves claim. It's like Buddha. It's like a person who's Buddhist is, and then... A person who's Buddhist and says that Buddha was God, not all Buddhists say that, but the ones who do say that, it's kind of interesting because Buddha said specifically that he wasn't God and he was not divine. And so it's kind of interesting, but it's kind of like that where they're like, hey, they're saying themselves like, whoa, whoa, 
we're not claiming to be of the same importance. Another thing, though, they were not regarded by Jewish people as being from God, like as originating from God. They were more like significant to Jews in their history. And there were specifically books that took place in that 400 years in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Another thing about them, they weren't considered to be scripture by Jesus or by other New Testament writers. There's a lot of, uh, I knew I was supposed to remember this word, I can't remember the word. Some of you very smart people, help me. Uh, I've given you no details about the word. <laughs> the word where you, um, you validate something, like the book is validating stuff from within. <laughs> that sounds that sounds very official. It's one of those very big words, really really cool words that I should know, but uh, would be great to know. But basically, all throughout the all throughout the Bible, you see different people in the Bible validating other parts of the Bible, quoting other parts of the Bible. But you don't see that none of them quote those books from the Apocrypha. They they don't validate them as being the same. And then the last thing, the teachings, there are some teachings within them that are quite inconsistent with the rest of the Bible. It's the easiest way to say it. it and similar to the Gnostics, but definitely not as extreme and weird. But this idea of like Jesus plus. And so... That's like kind of a picture, but I'm sure that I'll get some, some more questions about that, and that's okay. But, um, oh, doing perfect on time. we got about 10 more minutes, and I want to say a couple things about how to read the Bible and how not to read the Bible. But I'll start first with how not to read the Bible. And this is a little bit more practical when it comes to trying to dive into the Bible. The first thing I want to say is don't read the Bible. Please don't. In the form of like a lucky dip. The lucky dip. And that sounds weird, but it's just a fun word or a fun phrase. The lucky dip. Where you go and we've heard the story, like, or some of us have heard the stories where somebody's like, oh, yeah, you know, like I was really struggling with something. And I just was like, man, God, I need a message from you today. And so they like go and open up the Bible and they're like, bam. And then they read it. And this one's upside down. But (laughs) they read it and they say, oh, yeah, like. Yeah, this, if a ruler listens to falsehood, all his officials will be wicked. Man, I knew that was from you, God. Thank you. Yes. All right, I'm going to seize the day. Like, that is probably not the best way to read the Bible. Yes, I've, some of us have heard some amazing stories. I've heard some amazing stories of people doing that. It's probably not the best way to go about reading the Bible every day. Um, you know, it's like, you may do that and read the scripture that says Judas went out and hung himself. And then close the book and say, maybe that's not for you. And then open up and then it says, go and do likewise. And <laughs> then you're stuck, you know. So not a, not a great way to approach reading scripture. Another thing, though, don't read it like a dose of medicine. This is a little less ridiculous, but also extremely significant. Please don't read it as a dose of medicine where you're like, I had a friend who was like this and it was just like, routine and wrote to him where it was like 12, 12, 12 verses a day keep the doctor away Jordan and it was just like man like 
There's a little bit more to it than that. Like, it just, don't come in and just say, ah, yeah, I got my one chapter, and I read my one chapter each day. Like, yes, you'll, you'll get some things from it, but it, it's more. Like, there's so much that you miss when you approach it like that. Another thing, don't read it like it's a horoscope. 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 Sorry, I'm having fun with this. <laughs> don't read it like that, though. And this one, it sounds funny, but it's so what many of us do. We read it as if everything that we read today was exactly for me, and I got to go do the, like, Lord, what is your message for me today? No. Sometimes... Sometimes you're reading something and it's just really to help you to understand other parts of the Bible better and God's faithfulness to people. Or maybe sometimes you're reading something and really the message for that day is God is great and he's just awesome. And and it's not even like so much of a, a specific word for like how you should go and treat your roommates better. Like there are things in there like that, but... But read the Bible like where it is. And I'll get more into that in a second. But the last thing I want to say is don't read it as a supplement to devotional reading. A supplement to devotional reading. You got your devotional, you love your devotional, and your devotional has like one verse up there or one little passage that it wants you to read each day. And I've seen it. I've seen people, I've seen students where... They just get really excited about this cool devotional, and then that devotional suggests that you read this part of this chapter. And so they say, oh, yeah, I read read the Bible today, and really what they read was just what that devotional said. And really, their scripture is the devotional, and then the Bible was just kind of helpful. And you just miss so much, like... The devotional, everything they got was because of what the Bible had inspired that writer to say. Like, that's the real meat. That's the real, like, it's great to read devotionals. Just don't let devotionals really become scripture to you and then the scripture become helpful. How should you read the Bible? First, take it one book at a time. Treat it as a library and read it one book at a time. One book at a time. The reason I say that is because, like, in many ways, and this is a kind of an extreme example, but it, it really is kind of true in how we approach Scripture. Anybody, any Harry Potter fans out there? I'm a Harry yeah. Potter fan. Harry Potter fans, you got seven books. What happens if you say, oh, I'm going to read Harry Potter today, and you go and you read the second book, page 33, and you read about four pages there, and you're like, oh, Harry's so cool, and then you put him back, and then you go and you pick up the next day, Harry Potter book four, and then you pick it up, and you're like, page 67, that's, that's for me today, and then you read 10, 10 pages, and you're like, oh, Cedric Diggory, it really is so cool, and so you go ahead and like put it back in, and then you pick up Book six the next day, and you say, hmm, you know what? I feel like I should start at the beginning with book six. And you're just like, oh, man, Lord Voldemort really is terrible. Now, <laughs> as ridiculous as that sounds, though, like, you don't read any other book like that. Yeah. But yet we approach the Bible that way. Like, read yeah. a, a, like a book at a time. And I actually have something up here. It's, it's a, um, 
not giving you any details again. I'm, I'm really bad about this. But uh, it's it should be a picture of all the, how much time it takes through. There we go. My man. This is how long they say it takes to read each book in the Bible. It's a great thing to try to read some of these books in one sitting. And yeah, that kind of sounds ridiculous. But actually, it's not really ridiculous at all because you read other books in one sitting. You read a textbook for three hours at a time when you're really trying to, you know, get all the information for a test. Why can't we just read the Bible the same way? Read the whole Bible. You can read letters in whole sittings. I remember the first time I heard somebody say this was a guy named Ravi Zacharias. You've heard us talk about Ravi. Ravi's awesome. Have you ever apologetics questions? Then you know what? Yeah, just go look up Ravi on this, and he'll probably have 2,000 videos of him owning dudes with... Uh, their Q and A's, but anyways, he was talking about how in one sitting he read the whole book of Ezekiel and it was enthralling. And I was like, "What? I know Ezekiel's like forty cha chapters, man. Are you serious?" But then I tried it. Not Ezekiel. Sean did that, and I'm not there yet. But I tried it with some of the other books. I remember reading Romans, and it came so alive reading it all in one sitting. It was forever a different book to me. These books were actually, like, Paul's letters, these are letters. The book is actually kind of like the whole idea. It's like you wouldn't, how many times, like, how, would you actually enjoy a sermon as much if you actually broke it up over the course of six days and listened to it that way? Or would you enjoy it more by listening all in one sitting? So we do that. 50 minutes, 30 minutes. Treat the Bible the same way. One book at a time. Take it like that. So helpful. Another thing, though, is once you realize what book you're going to read or what, what book you're in, ask yourself, why was the book written? Why was this book written? The Bible is a library of books. And so with it being a library of books, each reason for why it was written is quite different from the other. Even when you look at the Gospels, the Gospels weren't all written to the same audience. They had different purposes. Matthew was written to Jews. It talks a lot about the kingdom of heaven. And so it talk, and it makes a whole bunch of Jewish references and talks about genealogies a ton. But then Luke is writing more to, to Gentiles. And so, he approaches it differently. Mark is writing to people who are more in servant positions. And so, he's talking more about what Jesus said in regards to the servant leader that he was. And John, one of the aspects of why he wrote his gospel was he said it actually towards then. He says, the reason I wrote this book is so that you would see that Jesus Christ was, was God. And he said this himself. And I'm trying to make it clear to you, that's why the book, like you look at John's gospel, he pulls out things that none of the other gospels talk about. Why was the book written? And you, if you go and you got like a study Bible or something, like many times they put it in there at the very front, take it seriously. Read it now is like, oh, okay, like I need to find out why this was written. And it makes you approach the book so differently. All right. I think, oh. Before I move to the next thing, oh, it's so good on time. I'm so proud, like a, like a proud parent. Good, good job, son. But 
the best attitudes to bring to reading the Bible because sometimes you can do something, you can be doing the right thing, but then take the wrong attitude into it and then you ruin the whole experience. That applies to everything. That's like, you just, just nugget for the day, you know. But what's the right attitude when it comes to reading the Bible? First of all, expectancy. Come in reading like, okay, God, there's something for me today. There's E. Stanley Jones, some of y'all have read him before, Christ in the Indian Road, Christ in Human Suffering, really cool, missionary to India for decades, really good friends with Gandhi, like really good, like some of y'all like those Gandhi quotes. Well, I don't think those Gandhi quotes would have come around unless, if it, except for his friendship with E. Stanley Jones and how E. Stanley Jones pushed him in regards to Christianity. But you know, that's going way off into a tangent. E. Stanley Jones, before he opened, when he opened up his Bible every day, he said, have you seen whom my, whom my soul loves? And he like came in with this attitude of worship. He would just say that short prayer before he opened up his Bible every time. And he just came in with this attitude of like, I am expecting, I'm expecting to see the one that I love as I read this book. Like come in with the right attitude. Another thing, reverence. Try to like, and this is just this is just really cool. Like, just try not to rush in. Try to like let your heart kind of quiet before him. In the same way, we're like, reverence is kind of a funny word because we don't use it that much. But to revere something, I could say Gordon Gee, but we see Gordon Gee all the time, and he's less reverential just because of his access, which he's really cool. So who's someone else we could revere? Yeah, you got Justin Bieber. You know, for some of y'all. No, some, some people were disgusted by that. I didn't say Justin Bieber. But who else? You know, like, who's somebody that you would, okay, some of y'all, NF, you know, if y'all saw, met, oh, you already have met him. Man, I'm doing really bad with this whole possible reverential Hugh people. Jackman. Hugh Jackman. Some of y'all saw Greatest Showman, and that is that would be reverential to meet that dude, because that movie was on point. Am I, I mean, am I lying? The only people who aren't cheering are the people who haven't seen it. It's still in theaters. It's worth it. But anyway, this isn't this isn't about the greatest showman. Take someone who is extremely like just so, like Taylor Swift, some of y'all are Taylor Swift fans, or or take like some, you know, LeBron James, some of y'all like sports, or JJ Watt, you know, is for Houstonians, you know. Yeah. Like, JJ Swatt. Yeah. But take someone who's a big deal. If you ran into them, you wouldn't rush into that meeting. You wouldn't rush into that meeting. You would you would come in and you'd be you'd be expectant, and you wouldn't you'd be like, oh yo, what's up, man? I'll see you later. I'm busy. You you wouldn't be like that. You'd come in and there would be like some awe about it. Like take that attitude in how you read the Bible. Like just like pause and like okay, hold on. I'm running around. I got this test. I got this thing. Got to do. But in these twenty minutes. Nothing else. I'm here. Another thing, though, is alertness. <laughs> Go to sleep the night before, and 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 prioritize. Like when you're gonna when you're gonna read. Like I don't know any other way to say this. So much of winning in the time of like trying to read the Bible. Is like winning the day before, especially if we're talking about like in the morning. Preparation for me when it comes to 
time with God or reading the Bible actually begins the night before to me. I I come in, I don't I try not to have many like things going on and I just say, all right, in this time, I'm gonna be like reading the Bible. But I go and set that step out the night before. I set my Bible out and I come in and I say, okay, in this time, I'm getting ready. I even know the time that I'm gonna spend with God. I know what time it's gonna be the night before. Because when you just wake up and say, oh, I'm going to get to it, it's different. It's just different. Try to come in alert. Hey, if you need coffee to wake up, I drink a lot of coffee. I drink too much coffee. I drink some coffee right now. <laughs> I drink, I, for me, I drink coffee. Maybe you're a pretentious tea drinker, like Katie Sambrio back there. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm mean to tea people. But whatever it is, just try to come in and take it seriously and be awake and be present. Last thing, a willingness to obey. Just, I had something else prepared when I was going to say this, but I'll just say this because I think this is just matters more. For me, when I took that step towards Jesus, the first significant step, the first thought I had was, all right, I've been trying to run my life my own way, and it's not working. I'll take you seriously. And your way I'll try to do it your way instead of mine. You take that attitude in reading, to reading the Bible. It's not like, all right, Lord, if this lines up with what I want, then I'm, it's worth obeying. But like coming with an attitude of like, oh, okay. I'll come under you, under your lordship. And what you say, I'll do. And I'll let the chips fall where they may. And really cool things happen. Really cool thing happens because you realize that as you trust God, you find out that he's way more trustworthy when you start trusting him. And the more you trust him, he proves himself over and over again. I was talking to, man, it's so cool to be able to say this. I was talking to Dick Brogdon a couple weeks ago. And he's like, he's a hero of, of some of ours, world famous missionary. I don't, know, I don't know if famous is the right word. Very well known missionary. But we're talking and we're literally having this conversation about the greatest proof to why God exists and why the Bible is legit and why Jesus is who he says he is was literally because of the last reason why we trusted him. Because the last reason why we trusted him, he proved himself yet again. And you just find yourself being like, dang, you really are. You really are amazing. Yeah. If you ask me, why do I believe the Bible? Let me think about my last two weeks. Yeah. And then I'll tell you my reason. The reason I came in is not the reason I'm still here. He keeps proving himself. So cool. But all right, we'll take a pause. We'll uh, not pause, but we'll go into a time of Q&A. But before we go into this time of Q&A, I want everyone to stand up. You've been sitting down for like an hour. You know, stand up, stretch a bit. Everyone, everyone, I see y'all back there. Mackenzie, I see you. You got to get up. Glenna. Yeah, I know you're royalty, but you got you to stand up. Watching y'all. Uh-huh. Allie. Yep. Everyone has to stand up. Everyone. Some y'all are working out. Cool. All right. Sweet. All right. You can sit down. You can sit down. All right. Who has a question? And Sean has the mic, so he will. He is going to be the helper with this. Thank you, Sean.
so um, my question is there's um, an idea that um, basically Matthew and Luke were sourced from um, like had some sourcing from Mark and also the like a mysterious document that no one's found yet <laughs> I was yeah the Q document um, and I was wondering what your thoughts were on that and like if that's true does that change anything about the way we view the Gospels mm, that is such a good question I have no one's ever asked me that question I've wondered about it many times first thing I'll say is to answer the second part of your question does it change anything for me I used to say that it did but I would say now that I don't think that it does because it, it just I was like oh I don't like the way that that sounds I don't like the idea of like the gospels being sourced from another gospel even if it was sourced from a friend it's like I don't it just sounds weird to me. But the more that I think about it, I'm like, well, I don't think that there's a mysterious Q document. I will say that. I think if there is a mysterious Q document, it's Mark. That is the Q document. Like, we don't have anything else that, we just don't have anything else. And so, I think it's funny to me that they would say that there has to be a Q document when why can't it just be, we sourced it from Mark, which was the first gospel written. That's just kind of interesting to me. But going... Oh, and if I've lost some people here, basically uh, there's supposed to be a Q document. And this was the reason that um, basically because we have this thing called the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they're all so similar that they say that some say that, they, oh, they're too similar. And so because they're too similar and they're not really that similar, what they have is like the same skeleton. And because that skeleton is so similar, people struggle with this idea of like, oh, maybe they were getting it from you know, this one document, but I don't know. I just, I just, I guess I just don't find that as much of a struggle as some people think it is. In saying that, I will say this. I thoroughly enjoy comparing the other Gospels to one another, and each of them adds a certain, like, even oh, one of my favorite stories, the story of the demon-possessed boy whose father was trying to kill himself. Mark's account is like so specific and Luke has it too but Mark's is like just has some extra stuff in there where I'm like oh that's really cool or the story of the rich young ruler it, I'm not, if I'm not mistaken they're in all three synoptic gospels but each of them has a different detail one talks about how the rich young ruler ran up to Jesus which makes me think totally different about the whole story because he's running up to Jesus and he actually falls before him and he's like what must I do to be saved which makes me think, oh, this isn't some pompous dude coming to ask Jesus for help. This is a dude who's desperate. And that one detail you can only get from one specific gospel. And it helps paint a fuller picture of the whole experience. So I appreciate the aspect of the Synoptic Gospels, but I don't struggle with the Q document aspect. I don't know if, I don't subscribe to that. If there is a Q document, then it, I'm sure it would be Mark. But they all add different things, so I don't struggle with it. That's my answer. Okay, so I'm in this Intro to World Religions class this semester, oh, and we just covered Judaism and Christianity, and we've been talking about all this stuff, but, like, of course, the information's a little bit different. And one of the things that we talked about was, like, the Gospels, and she was saying that the Gospels were written, like, I don't necessarily understand, like, the, the whole timeline aspect of everything, but she was saying that because of the timeline of when they were written, that the Gospels were written by people who didn't know Jesus and who weren't 
like witnesses of that. So do we know that if the people who wrote those books were people who like had direct contact with Jesus? That was why the Q7 document was so controversial, because it killed that argument. Because that argument was not only being made at universities and higher criticism. Uh, no, it wasn't just there. It was even made in Bible schools and the, like theological circles. Like Christians were saying this, like, oh, yeah, well, the Gospels were written by Jesus' followers. And they, were, they would say, like, oh, okay, it wasn't that bad because it's still better than any other book from antiquity because the other books from antiquity were, like, 20 generations later. The Bible was only written two or three generations later. So it's, so it's still supreme, but that Q7 document, changed everything and that's why it was that's why it took so long for like the american papyrology association and even the jesuits and the catholics to to like the same but to like come alongside that document because it was so significant in fact get a hold of like just go and like you google it and you go get a hold of it and then like take that to your professor and just ask her what she thinks and she but do it maybe you might want to do that after finals you know, I'm just being, being honest. Sometimes that changes some things for some people. Sometimes professors like talking about that stuff. So, hey, um, what's up? It, no, I'm really nervous. Um, you shouldn't be. You always have great questions. Thanks. Um, okay, so basically. Are you telling me that I'm supposed to... I'm, that was really mean that I just said it. I'm sorry. I didn't mean it to sound that way. <laughs> okay. So my question is, are, am I supposed to like sit down and read one book of the Bible at a time? Because some of them are long, and I, I, I'm sorry. I just got lost at that part. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know what? Just to help you out, you know, I'm going to break my own rule. I actually don't read one Bible at a time. I read... Yeah, no, I got that special Bible. I got that one with extra books and extra chapters. Y'all got to get on that. I read, I read part of the Old Testament and part of the New Testament every day. And so that's how I break it up for myself. Um, I do like still try to stay with like one book at a time because I used to read like six different books, like parts of six different, like the poetic and then the law and then the the gospels man i was like getting lost and it just it it was difficult and so for me that's what i do so that's what i mean it but really it's really just trying to stay try to take full thoughts like that's the whole goal is to like stay there fully and sometimes especially if the book is really short i'll actually put aside the old testament for the day and then just kind of just knock out that whole three, four chapters in one sitting because it just would be better than breaking it up just so I can take it all in its full experience. Does that help a little bit? Yes. Okay. You seem like you have a follow-up question. I'm just, I'm stressed because, I'm, God, I'm so sorry. Okay, so my, He's not mad. my Bible that I have, it, it, it gives me like just like a chapter a day to read. So oh. now I don't know what to do with my life, but I'll figure it out. It's fine. <laughs> Well, and, you know, to be a, got a couple friends out there who would want me to say this, so I'll go ahead and say it. Actually, encouragement for you all is to really read a Bible that doesn't have any chapter or verses on it, uh, because the chapters didn't come around until the 1100s, and the verses didn't come around until the 1500s, and actually that wasn't the way that the Bible was written, so it's kind of helpful to read 
to not let certain things be broken up so much because it can be really confusing. And then who's breaking it up? Like who's stopping that thought? And so as, as, a, as a scholar of the Bible, I feel like I had to say that. Going back to your question, this probably sounds mean. I would, either I would get a different Bible or I would just be like, oh, okay, cool. You want me to stop here for the day? I'm going to go ahead and keep reading and then do it that way. But just the, a chapter a day is, it, yeah, it's, it's great to read the Bible no matter what. But it's really helpful to take the book and it's like to really try to be in there fully. And so if you went to the Bible, I got some at my house. I, I, I could hook you up, you know. And Miranda has a very pretty pink one or a purple one, purple purple bible and um but either way there is that's my recommendation i feel like i i i should say that instead of just kind of coming along the bible that you already have it just helps so much to take the book and and to be able to be as present as what the author was trying to say as possible so other questions Um, so this is like from a personal uh, thing, I guess, but like, so in my apocalypse class, we're doing all the apocalyptic literature, um, and so we had to read, um, we read, read the Apocalypse of Peter and the Apocalypse of Paul, and how reliable do you think they are, because I'm really stressed out, because like, only my little sister basically knows Jesus, and I'm just like, stressed, because there's all these like, depictions of like, what hell would look like, and I was like, well, that's stressful, so. Hey! running around having fun. Could you ask that question one more time? Um, how reliable uh, would you say, and it's okay if like, you don't have an opinion, uh, the apocalypses of Peter and Paul are? The apocalypse of Peter? Yeah, like the apocalyptic literature of Peter and Paul. Do you mean Daniel? It's Gnostic. Oh. They're Gnostic. They're stressful. Oh. Man, if it's Gnostic, put that aside. They... <laughs> no, they, she literally taught it as it was Christian. Oh, yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense because because to them, it's like, it's close. It's not close. Um, I'm going to take this opportunity to bring up some things from the Gnostic Gospels. Uh, one of the Gnostic Gospels, the Gospel of Thomas, which is probably the most controversial Gnostic Gospel because it's the one that people try to argue for the most because it has the most things that are out of the New Testament in that Gnostic gospel than any other. Only problem with it is, or a few problems with it, is that it's what it adds. So it adds some things like, um, you know, like, remember Jesus, uh, they're trying to check him right before he dies. He's at the temple, and they're like, hey, should we pay taxes to Caesar or shouldn't we? And they're trying to catch him because if he says don't pay them, then he'll be in trouble with the law. And if he says do pay them, then he'll be with the, in trouble with the people because the people hated the Romans. And so they didn't want to pay taxes. So they were like, all right, he's going to lose some way. The people like him and then the government won't kill him. So let's go and try to catch him. Well, in this Gnostic gospel, it says, render to Caesar's what is Caesar's and God's God. That sounds about right, right? And then it says also, and render what is mine 
to me. Like, it just adds, like, minor things in there that are like, oh, that sounds kind of funny. And then it adds some things that are, like, kind of super sketch. Like, um, remember when his disciples say, uh, or one of the guys come up to him and say, what must I do to be saved? And then Jesus, you know, is like, believe in me. But also, unless you're a woman, that you need to pray for God to make you a man. And when he makes you a man, then you will be able to be saved because you can only be saved if you're a man. That's in there as well. It's very interesting. And so it's like Eusebius, who was an early church historian, wrote in the 300s one of the books called Pseudographia, which also means the false writings, writings like the, specifically about the Gnostics. He writes that many of these books, they didn't make it because basically they were dumb. That's another way of saying what he said. They were absurd, and they were impious, and, and they missed it. And one thing about the Gnostic Gospels, and this was the thing that really moved me out of, like, even taking them seriously. It was the thing that made me, like, I was like, I'm not even, even when I was trying to study them, I was like, no, not at all. It was finding out that many of them are written by Pharisees. Pharisees, by the way, are really cool dudes because, yes, he, Jesus had a ton of run-ins with them, and they basically did kill him. Um, or they, they had a big part in that. Jesus was actually a Pharisee in regards to what he believed. And he fought. There were two groups of Jewish leaders. The, there was the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And Jesus aligned with the Pharisees. He was fighting for them. And they were fighting against him. But he was fighting for their hearts. And a lot of Pharisees came to faith after like, all throughout Acts, the Pharisees are actually really significant. Why am I saying all this? Because with that, the Pharisees had a lot of training, and so breaking away from their Jewish mentality was very tough for them. So they, many of them wrote a lot of these Gnostic Gospels and extra-biblical texts came from men, Pharisees, 100, 200 years after Jesus. They weren't in the lifetime of Jesus. That's one thing that's very significant. I'm so glad I remembered that. If you notice the New Testament, there are only two books, I want to say, in the entire New Testament that are not written by people who had a personal relationship with Jesus. Like, like not just like, like I have a relationship with God, but literally like I knew Jesus. I, I knew him when he walked the earth. Like, it's only like two of them that, that they didn't have an actual, like, Jesus experience with him. If I'm not mistaken, it should be Luke. Acts and Luke are the only two. Oh, and then potentially Hebrews. Um, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. And so, some of you are like, well, what about Paul's epistles? But when Paul was blinded, what did it say? It said, who is this? Is this you, Lord? It is me, Jesus. Why are you kicking against the goats? That's in, that's in his third thing, which is my favorite thing. So he tells his testimony three times. I'm getting way lost. <laughs> Anyways, we have, uh, we have a few more minutes, so keep going. Next question. Okay, so you just kind of made it pretty clear that, like, all the, like, books that are included in the Catholic, like, Bible are just stupid and irrelevant. Whoa, whoa, I did not say that. I was, I was, no, that was the Gnostics. 
Okay, Gnostic, sorry. The Apocrypha is different. Um, but, so I'm just kind of curious because I grew up in the Catholic Church and I, like, don't really know a whole lot about them because, like, I was just taught, like, these are right. Don't question it. Yeah. But what would you say, like, to me if I was, like, should I read them just to know more about them? Yeah. Knowing full well that they're, they shouldn't be taken seriously. Uh, I didn't say, I won't say, I, they are not the Gnostic Gospels. They are not. Like the Gnostic, the Apocrypha is different. The Apocrypha, the Gnostic Gospels, and other extra-biblical texts, there's kind of like three different groups. The Apocrypha was, it was kind of appreciated, but it was like, ah, and this is like a history lesson. So it was like appreciated, and then people were like, ah, but yeah, kind of, I don't know. And people went back and forth, and it, it was like a resurgence of the Apocrypha. These are the, specifically the texts that are in the Catholic Bible that are not in the Old Testament, New Testament. So around 1100, 1200, there's a resurgence. And people are like, oh, yeah, yeah, the Apocrypha is kind of cool. People are like, ah, but it's not scripture. And then there was back and forth. And this is really, this is the most unpleasant thing that I'll say about this. Then a thing called the Reformation happened. And Martin Luther ruined all of Europe in regards to, like, ruined in the best way. He, like, turned the Roman Catholic Church on his head. For a thousand years, they were the preeminent power in regards to religion, in regards to finance, and regards to muscle. Like, they had, that means you're like, that's like, we don't see anything like that. There's, there's nothing in comparison to what they had. They were running stuff for centuries. Then Martin Luther comes on and basically beats them starts the Reformation and starts something over, and people are like, oh, okay, like, whoa, all right. And then the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, is reeling. So what do they do? They basically add it to the Bible. They were like, hey, hold on. Don't go with Martin Luther. He has that old Bible. Hey, we got this new Bible, and it's really cool. It has some extra books in it, and it's, it's better. And this happened in 19, not 19. I was like, why, why are you pausing so much? I have it written down, but I don't want to, so I don't want to say the date because I'm going to kill. Okay, there we go. It is um, Martin Luther, 1546, Council of Trent. 1546, Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church officially declared the Apocrypha to be part of the canon with the exception of first and second Estrus and the prayer of Manasseh. That was a very unfortunate thing. Going back to why I'm not going to just throw out the Apocrypha in regards to it being totally insignificant is because basically the way that the Apocrypha was treated before that, it was treated as like, all right, you know, some people read the Apocrypha. And this is like, because they see... They, they, they see positive things about it in the same way that and this is the easiest explanation I can say is in the same way that we would read A.W. Tozer or in the same way that we would read someone like we got all these books that we like and we're always talking about even like Winky but you wouldn't put him in the category of scripture he wouldn't put himself in the category of scripture he would say hey hold on I'm not scripture don't do that that's really weird in fact it's really bad in fact it's just disrespectful to me to raise me to the level of scripture when it comes to the Apocrypha, there are 
There's some good stuff in it. I would, I would be really wrong to say that. Is it scripture, though? Is it life breathing? Is it the word of God? No. Does it say that it's scripture? No. And so it's basically a great historical book. And, but there are some errors in it. There are some things that, yeah, have to be taken. But that's just like, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to desecrate the Apocrypha, nor am I trying to like lift it up to the place of Scripture because even it wouldn't do that to itself. And I am definitely trying to make it, make it clear that the Apocrypha in those books is like, is like, yeah, there's like, it's there. The Gnostic Gospels are here. And there's other extra-biblical texts. The Gnostic Gospels is like the furthest extreme. But the other extra-biblical texts, I mean, there's other stuff in there. It's like one of them is the infancy gospel, and it talks about how Jesus killed a kid and then raised him back to life to prove that he was God, you know? like Or that Jesus took a, made a bunch of clay pigeons and then brought them to life when he was a kid, and they floated off. Like, there's a certain things. It's like, yeah, it's, that's different. That's not in the Apocrypha. That's just in those other extra-biblical texts. It's, 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 they're different books. I hope I didn't uh, lose some of y'all in those, uh, in those historical details. I find those fun. But Any other questions? Oh. So I, too, like to read a Bible a day. <laughs> um, I'm actually really bad reading at the Bible my own time. So where would you suggest to start? In your own time, yes. or where? Oh, where, yeah, in the Bible. Oh, uh, honestly, I would start with the life of Jesus. Mm-hmm. So like Book of John or the Gospels? Not the Book of John. The Book of John may be my favorite Gospel, but it's, a lot of times I think of it like as the best Gospel to suggest to start reading, but it's not. Um, probably Mark is the best. It's, it's fast-paced. It's like just, it's just like action. It's like, you just, it's just, I mean, you start reading and you're running all of a sudden. You're like, whoa, what just happened? Like, and there's a lot of extra details in Matthew. Matthew and Mark are two of the best gospels to start in. I would, I would say there, I would go with that. And then in regards to how, I would start with going and reading. Um, I would, I mean, with the gospel, I would start with like two or three chapters. And I would just try to like just knock them out and just sit there and be present. Just a couple things of advice, not specifically just for you, but this is for everyone. One thing has to do with this time and the other thing doesn't have to do with this time. The first thing is try to be really present when you read the Bible. Put your phone away. Don't have a dictionary. Don't like if you're going to have a dictionary because you want to look up some words, then have like one sitting there. Don't like go and even look up stuff in the Bible. I know it sounds weird, but look it up after you finish so that you can just be really present and get the most out of that time. I had that list up earlier of like how long it takes. Guys, it really, they say it takes about three minutes and 45 seconds to read a chapter of the Bible. Three minutes and 45 seconds to read a chapter. We watch YouTube videos. We, we watch 10 YouTube videos in a day that are three minutes and 45 seconds. Like that is nothing. Just go and determine to say, hey, three minutes, 45 seconds to read a chapter? All right, I'm a slow reader. I'll give myself five minutes. Three chapters in 15 minutes? You have that time. You can do that. Start there. Three minutes, 45 seconds, five minutes for slow readers. I'm a slow reader. 
hope for slow readers. I'm a really slow reader. But just go in 15 minutes. I'm going to read. And then afterwards, if you have some, like, thoughts or questions, then go look it up then so that you don't, like... And if you really are, like, really stuck on something, then just, just draw a line next to it and then come back to it later. If you want to, like, highlight something, then just draw a line to it and come back when you finish. Like, try to, like... You can, you can do it in that time. It's there. We have the time. We have it. And so, does that answer your question? Another thing I'll throw out there, too, audio Bibles. They are so helpful. And you, you think that they may not be, but they're extremely helpful. The YouVersion app, you can listen. It's a free app of the Bible. Craig Rochelle and his church, they made it really cool. But you can go and listen to, like, you can listen to Scripture. When you're walking to class, you can listen to it. And it's so cool because you, when you hear it, when you're washing dishes, when you're cleaning your house, you can listen to the Bible. And it's, it's kind of tough for, like, Proverbs. I'll, I'll just say that. It's kind of, like, less tough for the Psalms. But it is extremely impactful for narratives in the Bible. So stories, like, if you're talking about the Gospels or if we're talking about First Chronicles or Second Chronicles, like, yeah, you know. And, and if you're in the Chronicles, you know, you don't, don't give up. You know, the First Chronicles, they got, like, Nine straight chapters of, of uh, people begatting, be, uh, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. It's like just genealogy for nine chapters. There's hope. The, um, all they did in the Bible was not just begat. They did some begatting, but they did other stuff. And so just keep reading and persevere. But um, those genealogies are really cool, by the way. I learned this recently, that mu- Muslims, they... They actually find genealogies extremely powerful. And sometimes they'll just read. Cool story. A Muslim man who had heard about Christianity was like, was like, yeah, I've been there, done that. Then somebody's like, hey, well, can I just read some of the Bible to you? And he says, sure. They start reading the genealogy at the beginning of Matthew. And the man, before the genealogy finishes, says, I believe. What do I have to do? I believe. And they were like, what just happened? And he said, you've just said it. The genealogies prove everything. Like they put so much weight. And in Eastern cultures, genealogies are so significant because they show like, oh, this is this person's history. This is where they came from. There's truth to this. You can't lie about these names. Isn't that crazy? So in the West, we're like, genealogies, what? I'm going four chapters later. All right, where does the real fun start? But with them, it's so significant. One, one more question. One more. I got two stories and we're done. Y'all have done such a good job listening. Wow. Like, no more questions. Uh-oh, Sean has a question? Do you have any good resources for where... Where to where to do like if we're not if we're not really know where, we don't know where to start because I mean there's like yeah we read the Bible but like you said it's it's a totally different culture it's a totally different mindset mm-hmm. and it's like there's some stuff where it's like oh yeah that's obvious but then there's other stuff where it's like I don't I don't even know what the culture was like like what what are, where's a place to even start with like obviously we start reading the Bible but then there's we got to start like how do we have things that help us to understand it. More well, than just reading. The first thing I would say is the website. 
we have uh, on our website, Chi Alpha website. You can go there, and is it chialpha.com? WVChialpha.com? WXA.com. Sorry, I just have it saved in my in my tab, so you know I don't have to think. But in there, we have like resources. You can read about the Bible, and we have a lot of different things. One of the things we have is a thing where, as I was so mean to Emily earlier about her Bible, I will say that there is. Sean has actually made it available that you can go, and if you want to read any of the Bible without verses or chapters, and you just want to read it straight through as it was written, it's actually on there. If you scroll down, he has PDFs of it, and you can like click it, you can get there real fast, and you can read. You can read it without verses and chapters. So that's one thing. Another thing is, and I'm writing it here, as you can see, blue letterbible.com blueletterbible.com anyone who's not interested in learning Hebrew or Greek you can go and look up the verse and then what it says in the original language and then read about that Greek word or Hebrew word that was used to say this thing so that you can get a better understanding so you're like oh yeah love the Lord your God with all your heart soul mind and strength oh what does heart mean you know I'm like where do you even begin? Like, what, what is that? And so you can go and look up what that actual word for heart, why it was translated as heart, and then what it means in the original language. It is such a cool resource. Blue Letter Bible, they also have commentaries that are available on there for free. When you, you literally just type in the verse and you start there and you just start clicking. And you just keep clicking and clicking and clicking. And it just gives you all this information. I should have it up here and I could like point to it and you could see it. That would be much more helpful because you all are so visual. But I don't have that. I'm from the 19th century. And uh, we, don't, we don't do stuff like that. Some of y'all caught me. 20th century. But, um, but yeah, those are a couple resources. I will say, and this is the first resource I was going to say, is your friends. Your friends are incredible resources. Ask the people around you. And then if they don't have an answer, then keep asking until you get an answer. Sometimes your friends have actually thought about this before. Maybe it'll just stir something in them, and then you can go and y'all can go figure it out together. But go and ask your friends. Go and ask people like your resource leader or your small group leader, because they have probably not just read books on... Um, they have not just like read the Bible and thought about it, but they've actually probably been reading some books by people who studied the Bible for their lives and learned what they mean. Like, remember that whole thing when I mentioned the um, rich young ruler and one was like running, or one gospel said that he was running and that he knelt down and all this stuff? Like, I got that because I was reading a book about that encounter and then it was pointing out certain details and then I started comparing the scriptures. And so, like, that's where it came. And so, the people around you have been reading a lot of resources on this. And so, yes, we are all students of the Bible together. I'm still a student of the Bible. But these are some resources. The WVUXA.com, Kaiapha.com website. Sorry, Sean. Don't. I know I butchered the name. But that's a great place to start. And Blue Letter Bible. Now, I will finish with two stories, and we will be done perfect. First story is of this man. I think I have a picture of him. 
Yeah. Yes, William Tyndale. Oh, what a beast. Who knows what the, why this guy is significant? Sean, you can't answer. <laughs> Who else? Dalton? Oh, yeah, that's what I was, this was the handout for us. What? Yeah. Anybody else have a good answer? No, that's exactly what he did. Good job, Dalton. That's perfect. Yes, that's what he did. He translated the Bible into English. Guys, this is so significant. 500 years ago, you could not get the Bible in English. This is uh, not coming after the Catholic Church. I actually greatly love the Catholic Church and especially because of uh, Tomate Alley and Sean, so you know, you know they've done something right. No, Mother Teresa, St. Francis Xavier, St. Francis de Assisi, there's some, oh, there's so many great saints that have come out of the Catholic Church. So many. But stepping away from that, one terrible error that came from the Catholic Church, and it, it was horrendous. It was, Martin Luther brought this thing called the priesthood of all believers. And he made it so that basically everyone should have, like, everyone had weight when it came to reading the Bible for yourself and God speaking to you individually and personally. That was not available 500 years ago. 500 years ago, the Catholic Church said the Bible, they went so far as to say that the Bible was only written in Latin. And that that was the original language. The thing about Latin was there was a monopoly on learning Latin. Only super high official wealthy people could learn Latin. And so all the common people and all the people below the common people, they couldn't read the Bible. If you can't read the Bible, you can't know what it really says. If you don't know what it really says, then if the Catholic Church says something really bad about what the Bible is saying, then you believe it. Oh, yeah, that you have to go and touch this skull of this saint in order to have your sins forgiven? Yes, you have to go and travel to this city, touch this skull of this saint, and then that's where salvation will come. That was kind of some of the things that were going on, and it was rough. It was rough. It was a rough time. It was a rough time. This is this some of the reasons why they talk about this thing called the Dark Ages. It was a rough time. So, what does that have to do with William Tyndale? This man comes along, and there's a guy named Erasmus, and he writes the Bible in English. Not the he writes the New Testament. He makes it available in Greek from. From like, it's like originally, he goes and makes it available for people. And it's like a huge hit. So if you know Greek, you can go and read the New Testament in the new language. Why does that sound weird? Why do you have to go back to the, but wasn't it written in the Greek? Like I said, the, the Catholic Church made it so that everyone thought that the Bible was written in Latin. And so that was a very significant thing that he did. But most people, if you didn't know Latin, then of course you weren't going to know Greek. And so William Tyndale is empowered by this. And he's like, you know what? I can go and write the New Testament. I can write the New Testament in English and give it back to people. 
And so this guy, young guy, he grows up in a slightly affluent like kind of life, goes to Oxford University, learns eight languages. I guess he's doing something right. Learns eight languages and then determines that he's going to go and give the Bible back to his people. Well, this is what happened if you had the Bible in English. You died. Or if they were very lenient on you, then you got life imprisonment. Life imprisonment was mercy for having an English Bible. When I say that it was dangerous, there was a man in the time of, there were many men, but this was just specifically right when William Tyndale got this idea to write the Bible in English. There was a man in a nearby city called Norwich City in England, and he determined, hey, you know what? I'm going to go, and I'm going to have the Lord's Prayer in English. And so he had a Lord's Prayer in his house in English. And then authorities found out, came to his house, took it, burned it, and then burned him alive for having the Lord's Prayer in English. Guys, it was, a, it was an ugly time. William Tyndale says, this has to change. So he goes and gets this great idea. You know what? I'm going to go be a tutor to really rich people and their children. So he goes and tutors rich people's children. And while he's doing this, he knows that this is the perfect job, job to, that has a ton of free time so that he can go and translate the Bible into English. So this is what he does. Well, he's pretty kind of open about it. And so there's a story of a pope who came to, not a pope, a priest who came to these people's house to eat dinner with them. And they're like, oh, William, come and join us with this priest. You like, you like Jesus. This guy likes Jesus. You guys will have fun. And it, in the story, the priest comes by and says to the, to the point, hey, you know what? I actually think the pope's laws are better than God's law. And people don't have a Bible, so they can't really refute anything like this. And like, oh, okay, wow. Okay, the Pope's laws are actually better than God's laws. And William Tyndale stands up and he's like, you're dumb. That's dumb. In fact, I, I'm against the Pope in everything he's about. And then he says this. I think that in a few years, I'm going to make it so that the kid who's pushing an ox, plowing an ox, will be able to know the scriptures better than you. And storms out. Then he goes on to flee the country soon after, goes to Germany because there's only two printing presses in that time in all of England, and they both kind of suck, and the authorities are there. So he goes to Germany where Martin Luther's been like tearing stuff up. He goes, meets Martin Luther, says, hey, I'm a fellow rebel like you. What do you think about this idea? Martin Luther's like, yes, this is a great idea. Give the Bible in English to the people. So he goes goes into like Cologne, which further down Germany, further down the Rhine River, goes, starts printing there, then goes and sends Bibles over in English, New Testament Bibles in English, sends them, but they can't send them openly, so they send them in caskets, they send them in bales of hay and barrels, they send them in all these different things, flour, to get them into the country. Well, the authorities find out, and they say, well, he's already printed them, so we can't stop him. Let's buy them all up, and that's how we'll get them back. They buy them all up, but they bought them. So he made a ton of money. So he's like, sweet. So he goes and prints even more. <laughs> Over the next eight years, he gets 20,000 into the country. 20,000 New Testaments into the country in English. Guys, before I finish the story... Just to pause and make it clear how significant that is. You know, this is like 1520s when this happens. What is it? Plymouth. 
poor historian at this moment. It's like 1609? When did it land here in America from England? 1692. No, not 1692. Not Columbus. Columbus is 1492, but 1620? Thank you, Bree. That's 100 years later. If William Tyndale didn't do this, would they even have brought Bibles over here? Would we have even had Puritans? Would we be a country who was founded on these laws, these truths that we hold, uh, poor historian again, these truths that we hold to be self-evident? Would those have been our conviction? Because those convictions came from people, whether they were Christians or not, had a very high view of the Bible. What would America be like today? Would America even exist today without William Tyndale? This man, what he did was unbelievably tremendous. The reason I say it was so tremendous, he didn't just get 20,000 Bibles out there. He actually ended up being caught. He ended up being burned alive or Fortunately, because he was high-born and because he was so respected in some circles that they actually strangled him, which was extremely, is something that they never did, but they strangled him and then they burned him out of respect. But he had one more prayer, and this is like all, nobles from all around, all different countries came to see this man be burned alive, and you know, or to be burned to death. And you know what they said? He had one final prayer. He said, Lord Jesus, open the eyes of the king so that he would see this great work that needs to be done so that the Bible can be put in English for all people. The king wasn't there. He had a relationship with the king because the king had kind of resisted him and knew all about him. And he confronted the king about this. The king came after him, had a huge hand, actually was the key figure in him being killed. Cool thing, though, the king was so convicted over the next 10 months that he actually made it. He mandated that there be tons of Bibles made in English. And he, made, and he brought them to the people. And out of respect for William Tyndale, they refused to put his name as the author of the translation because the king wasn't willing to go that far. But he's like, well, at least, I, at least I do this. Out of respect for him, they put W.T. W.T. right there, right before it says the New Testament. This guy, this guy had a huge respect for Scripture. And I want to finish with one last story and we're done. This story is an even, in an even darker time. It's in a time called the Holocaust where people were being killed for being different. And it's the story of these boxcar Jews. It's a true story. You can find it in Yad Vashem in the Holocaust Museum in, um, in, in Jerusalem, Israel, in Israel. And uh, basically, these Jewish men are put into this boxcar, and they're all there, and they, there's no false hope. They understand what ha what's going on. They know they're about to go to a concentration camp, and they know they're about to die soon, soon after. One man sneaks a Torah scroll into his jacket, he sneaks specifically the Book of Life, which is the Torah scroll, scroll for the Jews. Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, not Matthew, 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He sneaks it into his jacket. Gets it. People are like, this is great. They get to the camp, come out of the boxcar, and there's a surprise inspection that they weren't expecting. They find the man's Torah scroll. They take it out, burn it in front of him, watch him lose hope, and then they shoot the man. When they finally take the rest of the men into their like barracks, when they get in the room, the men are extremely despondent. One man's like, there's no more hope. And then another man's like, all hope is lost. And then another man's like, nothing. And one man stands up. This is a true story. One man stands up and he says, brothers, do not weep. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the, and darkness was over the deep. And the spirit of God hovered over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And line upon line, chapter after chapter, book after book, he went on to recite not only the Torah scroll, but so much more from memory. He treated the Bible like it was sacred. And he became sacred. When other people were off living their lives and chasing all the different things that you can chase in this world, this man, he treated the Bible as if it was indispensable. And as he treated the Bible as if it was indispensable, he became indispensable. He treated this treasured possession like it was a treasure. And he became the treasure. <coughs> William Tyndale died to make it so that we could have this book. It is actually a quite foreign idea in the history of mankind for the Bible to be available to personal individuals. We have Bible upon Bible in most of our houses. You go to a hotel and there's a Bible there. But this book is sacred. It's sacred. John Wycliffe died for this book to be able to make it in our language. Many men and women have died. There's a few who we know their names, and there's hundreds, like that man who had that prayer, the Lord's Prayer in English, who died, and we'll never know their names. They're nameless faces. But we have this sacred book because of that. That man treated the Bible as if it was indispensable, and he became indispensable. I'll pray and we'll be done. I can smell the pizza. Lord God, please help us, Lord God, to make your word sacred to us, to view it as this. 
or to treat it as this. Let us be people of the book on this campus. And I know that if we are people of this book, Lord God, that you will bring about many great miracles and you will heal many lives and you will change this campus forever. If we are lovers of your word, help us to be that. Thank you for the gift and the miracle that this book is. Thank you for bringing it together. We praise you for it. Help us to revere it and help us to treat it as indispensable. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're done.